are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we are picking up again with step 22 on vainglory. And if you're following along in the text, we are on page 169 with paragraph 40. And uh, then we'll be moving on to pride itself, uh, which he sees as intimately linked, uh, certainly to vainglory. And uh, and then to meekness and then to humility after that. So we have some one really beautiful steps to look forward to in, in the coming weeks. So again, 169, paragraph 40. Do not hide your shameful deeds with the idea of removing a cause of stumbling from your neighbor. Although, although perhaps it will not be advisable to use this remedy in every case but it will depend on the nature of one's sins. And so in dealing with vainglory, John counsels us not to hide our faults or failings, that we, part of overcoming uh, not only the sin itself, uh, but uh, of vainglory is to acknowledge the truth uh, about our weakness and our poverty and not to uh, seek to hide it from others. And here in this paragraph, he, he does counsel, there are certain sins, obviously, where one might not do that. Uh, perhaps if they're of a more sensual nature or could be of a danger to others uh, in hearing about them or hearing specific details, one would be more discreet. But in general, uh, I think the cure for so many of the sins is to bring them into the fullness uh, of the light and not to keep them hidden, uh, certainly from our spiritual director or elder uh, elders, but uh, I think back in John's time and within the common life, not to hide them from, from others within the community either. Uh, and certainly it is the thing that undermines vainglory uh, when we are willing to set aside you know, our self-esteem, our image, and allow ourselves to be seen as we truly are, certainly by God and by others. Number 41, when we invite glory, or when it comes to us from others uninvited, or when our vainglory, we decide upon a certain course of action, we should remember our mourning and should think of the holy fear with which we stood before God in solitary prayer. And in this way, we shall certainly put shameless vainglory out of countenance. 
if we really have concern for true prayer. If this is insufficient, then let us briefly recollect our departure. And if this is also ineffective, at least let us fear the shame that follows honor. For he who exalts himself will be humbled, not only there, but certainly here as well. And so we have to guard ourselves uh, whenever we are praised uh, by others, to guard our hearts and before uh, accepting that praise or accepting to be uh, drawn into circumstances where, where we will in some way be exalted or esteemed. Uh, the evil one, as we've talked about so often, can be relentless in this regard, even putting in the minds of others to, uh, as, it, as it were, plays, play the seducer by uh, engaging in this constant praise of others. And I don't want to be strident about this. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit before in the sense of uh, showing gratitude to others or acknowledging their particular gifts. But we also have to show care for another soul. And uh, constantly elevating a person can put them in, in great danger. And uh, our, our generation sort of has a tendency to do that. We love to exalt individuals, including uh, those in positions of teaching authority within the church, sisters or priests who happen to be very eloquent or great teachers. Uh, they can be elevated in, uh, in esteem and praised and be before tens of thousands of individuals. And sometimes this can take hold of a soul and lead to a kind of negligence in the spiritual life and over attentiveness to the work as if it's an end in itself, a kind of activism that ignores uh, the attention to the heart and to one's prayer life. And before you know it, uh, the individual that was held in such high esteem uh, falls and then uh, then the very people who praise can be the, become the greatest critics. Um, we can take a kind of morbid delight in uh, another's diminishment in the eyes of others. And so John says there are ways that we should really be careful in uh, avoiding this. One is through a, a kind of mourning over our, our sin, the recollection of our poverty, uh, the death of our sin before God, and how often he has shown us mercy. And so allow our compunction over our present weaknesses as well as our past sins to hold us back from any uh, vainglory. Uh, then to perhaps think about, uh, the rec to recollect, he says, our departure. So to remember death, that our life in this world is very brief and our one concern should be the kingdom and to fulfill the will of God. And so to know that we will leave this world very soon and come before him. And if this doesn't work, he says, then to fear the shame that follows, that uh, comes from judgment being seen in the full light. And uh, not only uh, in the world to come, but even now, that as quickly as we grow in the honor uh, and honor in the eyes of others, we can be diminished and uh, be drawn down. And uh, humility 
is the path and it is also the virtue in which the other virtues uh, are contained and that we can have seemingly all the others uh, yet if we lack humility and are filled with vainglory and pride all of those are for naught John tells us and uh, so he's not uh, simply speaking uh, in a in an extreme fashion here I think he's speaking about the the nature of the reality of the spiritual battle and that uh, to give ourselves to over to pride is really to give ourselves over to the other vices and to be drawn down. Okay, any comments or questions so far on the first few paragraphs? Okay. Number 42. Comment. Of course. Um, you know, as you were talking about vainglory, um, there's been quite a bit of discussion in uh, recent months in the news about narcissism. You know, certain people in the news are called narcissists and then there have been articles about are you a narcissist am mm -hmm. i a narcissist and i can see a lot of parallels there about you know seeking glory reticence to accept uh my sins right it connects to the newspaper today to the newscast in my thinking yeah very much so i mean we in reality, we all struggle with narcissism. You know, it's uh, it might not be uh, the clinical definition of narcissistic personality disorder, uh, but we all struggle with this kind of narcissism of self-focus, where the ego uh, becomes the center of our existence and satisfying uh the the self and self-image and uh, pursuing the things that elevate us again in our own minds and in the eyes of others and uh, uh but if it takes hold of us uh it can shape uh the personality and uh and and certainly undo much uh, of the spiritual life and i think this is why certainly we see in the gospel and why we see in the fathers uh, a striking so hard uh, against the, the vice of pride. Uh, because once it is ensconced and once the ego uh, has really taken hold of ev even the spiritual life, that it drives the decisions that we make about our spiritual practices and how we manifest uh, our spiritual identity, then it can wreak havoc. Uh, on our lives and in the life, lives of others. And uh, you know, if we follow a humble, crucified Lord, uh, how is it that we fulfill the gospel? If the, the, the self, rather than God, is what is guiding and directing us. Uh, it's, and you can no. also see it in the uh, social media, like I've been, uh, since COVID hit, I, and I was re I retired, so I decided to set up a Facebook account. And you see this dynamic where someone puts a new picture of themselves up, and then you can see all the comments, beautiful, oh, you're beautiful. And uh, to your point about how you can draw somebody in, in a wrong direction, you know, I kind of mm -hmm. told myself I'm not going to get 
into that, although I love this person. Maybe this is my relative, but I don't want him or her to be seeking that. And then you read the critique of Facebook and its impact on young people oh. and how they get sucked into that. And when they don't get it, how bad they feel. It's all you're hitting a lot of things that are. Yeah, it's not just young people either that are negatively affected. Right. <laughs> yeah. I use Facetune all the time, you know, to sort of get rid of all the flaws and elongate my beard, you know, just. Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there are a lot of good things that can connect us through it. But it's, I think, with so many things, it's meant to be addictive. And they want to keep people on it as long as they can. And so while there are some good and beautiful things about it, and uh, uh, and certainly, you know, within the church, you know, we've even been called to make use of modern means of communication and including the media. But we have to do so uh, with kind of discrimination, you know, to be able to see, see the negative aspects and seek to avoid those. Louise writes, could we say that pride usually prevents people uh, to acknowledge that they are under a spell or diabolically influenced? Well, it is obvious to others, given the incongruence of their behaviors. Yes, you know, I think when uh, just with with as with narcissism, uh, it's egocentric. So it seems very much you know, this is who I am, this is my identity, my personality. And I think when we struggle with pride and are become deeply immersed in it or vainglory, it seems very a, a very natural part of who we are and our identity. And uh, this is what makes it dangerous. I think in spiritual life in particular with pride, because it prevents repentance, that if we are unable to see what others are seeing, but more importantly, what God sees, and we are unable to see our own need for mercy, then we do not repent and turn back towards him. And uh, I think we have a tendency to diminish the, the weight and the significance of that in our own spiritual ba battles. But... Uh, uh, I don't think it's as rare as we tend to make it out, the unforgivable sin that Christ speaks of in the gospel. And just as a reminder, he talks about that immediately following uh, the scribes and the Pharisees criticizing him for healing a man on the Sabbath day. And they attribute the act to Beelzebub. And so they call what is good evil. And so they have lost their capacity in their pride to, to see the gift of God before them, and uh, as well as to see their own sin. And uh, this is then where he follows uh, with the teaching of the unforgivable sin. And uh, when we are unable to turn toward God, then we're unable to receive that which he desires to give us. He does not force that love upon us. He does everything to draw us to himself, to beckon us, uh, to come to him. But if we are negligent or we give ourselves over to vainglory and then ultimately to pride, it can solidify it in such a way that we are convinced in our point of view and we lose sight of the fact that we all have 
not only the narcissistic tendencies that we've talked about, but blind spots, hard spots that prevent us from seeing certain parts of who we are. And uh, I was reading a little bit, uh, uh, I forget which author I was uh, reading from. It may have been from Climacus uh, in the section on pride, but he talks about uh, even the elders you know, there are those who in their spiritual life, you know, make some gains, but because of negligence, they fall back out of the this spiritual life. And he says, you know, even the elders who are most deeply rooted in the, the life of the desert and asceticism, uh, you know, engage in this process of, you know, of making gains in the spiritual life, but then struggling and falling. And so repentance, again, is a constant need in the spiritual life for us. And the, the moment we lose the capacity to do that, then, uh, you know, intimacy with God becomes an impossibility. Okay, number 42. When our praisers, or rather our seducers, begin to praise us, let us briefly call to mind the multitude of our sins, and we shall find ourselves unworthy of what is said or done in our honor. And so, again, you know, to see that there is a seductive element to praise that the evil one will, will take advantage of, uh, even if what is said is rooted in a truth and rooted in the goodwill of the other, uh, it can act in a seductive way to the soul. And so we have to be careful in offering it, but also in receiving it. And he tells us here to, to call to mind the multitude of our sins, even if it's just for a moment, you know, not to cast ourselves down into despair, but to, to bring before the mind's eye, as it were, uh, the reality of our past sin, uh, to sober us, if you will, uh, and uh, to draw us out of this the state of being in, inebriated with, you know, this uh, praise of others, and uh, and it doesn't take much to look at our lives to, to again to sober us up very very quickly. No doubt, he goes on to say, there are certain prayers of same some vainglorious people that deserve to be heard by God. But the Lord has a habit of anticipating their prayers and petitions so that their conceit should not be increased because their prayers have succeeded. So God will either uh, delay uh, answering a prayer or give a person what it is that is needed. So every vainglorious person isn't praying in a bad way and what they might be praying for can be something good, but God can anticipate how it will be responded to if that prayer is granted. And so uh, John says here that uh, he will anticipate their prayers and petitions so that the, the conceit doesn't take hold of them, that one has to see that it is a gift from God, that it's pure gift, that it doesn't arise even out of the action of our praying. Uh, because even there, it is the spirit that dwells within us and cries out with, you know, groans beyond words. 
And our core prayer is united to this spirit of love and perfected and lifted up and elevated. And so even as we pray, and even if our prayers are responded to, our, our response should be that of gratitude and this acknowledgement that God sees all of our needs and, uh, and anticipates them. Continuing, he says, no doubt there, I'm sorry, number 44, simpler people are not much infected with the poison of vainglory because vainglory is a loss of simplicity and an insincere way of life. So those who have a simple lifestyle, who don't necessarily have all the, the things that this world provides for comfort, uh, perhaps their work is more simple uh, or not revered by those in the world, that they often don't struggle with this particular vice uh, because the world does not offer them uh, any notoriety, uh, doesn't recognize the work that they do or the things that they do. And last week, or I think on Monday in the Evergatinas, we were talking about Philip Neary saying, love to be unknown or love the hidden life, uh, that there is, uh, again, this kind of danger when we are putting ourselves forward rather than God. And so part of this training in the spiritual life is this loving to be unknown, to engage in the spiritual life and to engage in this formation where we are not thrust out to be the teacher of others quickly, uh, and should, should not uh, be rushing out to, to do that. Uh, and so, you know, typically in religious communities, there's a novitiate, sometimes a rather lengthy novitiate. And a lot of times that work uh, can be of a manual nature, taking out the garbage, mopping, sweeping, and, you know, avoiding a kind of idleness before even the studies begin. And it's here where one is trained in not only humility, but obedience. If you remember, the monasteries would often look at the, their daily work as uh, their obedience. Uh, they're given their obedience for the day. And so this is how, how they fulfill the, God, the will of God, by doing what is asked of them and doing it with love and humility. And so the training in the novitiate prior to going off to seminary and working towards a degree is to see, you know, is what is a person really seeking? And if they grouse about doing these things, then the, there is an issue of formation there that has to be addressed. Because little do they know that being ordained is not going to uh bring you respect in the eyes of the world or necessarily respect uh uh from the eyes in the eyes of those in the church and uh more or less it puts a target on your back sometimes and but there has to be a, a willingness to receive what comes to us in a spirit of humility and not to be moved to anger by it, uh, and to you know imitate the Lord 
you know, certainly in how he responded to these things and to, to seek to engage others with love and understanding, even as they are at times striking out against us. And so if a person cannot even bear taking out the garbage, you know, that or emptying the dishwasher, uh, there's a little bit of an issue there that they have to work on. There are a lot of seminarians that can fall into this idea of being princes of the church. And uh, again, that can be a very seductive thing, you know, as if there, there's a kind of royalty there rather than a call to serve and to be the slave of others. Uh, Anthony writes, it sounds then that the bad things attributed to Vatican II is an example of poor formation. Uh, I, I guess I'm not quite following you. Which bad things or what bad things are you speaking about? Well, sometimes I've heard that there were recovations and when you wanted to talk to the priest about what's going on here, why are we doing them? They'd get on their high horse. Mm -hmm. um, if that's true, I didn't exactly live through it, but mm -hmm. if that's true, then it sounds like vain vanity rather than humility. Yeah, you know, I think that's often an easy thing uh, for people in our day to point to, as if things like that began at Vatican II. You know, it existed in the College of the Apostles. And so, you know, or really goes back all the way to Adam and Eve, you know, the things that we struggle with. And uh, certainly struggles with vainglory and pride existed before Vatican II. And, you know, this exalted image of, pre, uh, of priesthood, a clericalism that, go, you know, went both ways. And, uh, and I think the, the deeper problem is our disconnect from the gospel, our negligence when it comes to keeping our focus upon Christ, what's going on within our own minds and our hearts, and our disconnect from the spiritual tradition as a whole that is, seeks to help us to embody the gospel, to live it, to you know, move them from the mind to the heart. And we've often turned Christ, Christianity into an ideology and, uh, you know, or, you know, a legalistic set of moral principles. And certainly there are, you know, are specific things that we believe and hold to be true. You know, we are a creedal faith, but, you know, we also, uh, our faith is rooted in a person in Christ. And, you know, when we take our eyes off of him and off of ourselves and our own need for conversion, we very quickly direct our gaze at others and, uh, and begin to pick out all of their flaws and their weaknesses. And I think we see this, you know, Victor brought up about Facebook, but it's across the internet, you know, the kind of battles and the critiques that people offer, offer of each other. And uh, it's probably the poorest example of Christianity out there when people see us engaging each other in this fashion. That again, really the focus should be on what's going on internally. And the way that we strengthen the church, even if we see weaknesses and deep poverty and sin, should be personal conversion, personal repentance. This is how we elevate and strengthen the church. We're part of the body 
of the church. And there's a solidarity there. And we have this obligation, uh, if we see it suffering, you know, to seek to bring healing by a greater conversion ourselves, by not seeing ourselves as disconnected from the sin of anyone. You know, at least we must say, there but the grace of God go I. But we have to also acknowledge that our present sin and even our past sin has done its own uh, to weaken uh, the church as a whole. And so whatever way we approach it, it should be personal conversion. And so we really, in terms of even like leadership, you know, what priests should be speaking about, and I think bishops should, should be this, repentance, purity of heart, you know, drawing us back to, again to the heart of the gospel. And Father, uh, may I make an observation? Of course. Kind of related to the Vatican II, um, I believe that a lot of the return of the Eastern rites to their true charism mm -hmm. is rooted in the documents of Vatican II where the Roman rite and the theologians gathered for the council realized that it had taken a dominant role in Latinization of all these other rites and the attitude towards married clergy. Like when the Eastern Rite priest came in the 1800s, right. there, you know, you can find a Bishop Ireland, you can look it up, and they were very intolerant, very prideful. They had no knowledge of the Eastern Rites, and they were in union with Rome. There's a, a storied history, I don't need to go into it all. But the conversion that came through the Vatican II has led to the resurgence you might say, of the Eastern Rites, rediscovering that charism that had been lost, that had been suppressed. Mm -hmm. I agree, and I, th I think there's a long way to go uh, in the Eastern Rites as well as in the in the Latin Rite. Uh, that resource Mont, you know, that you're speaking of, really ha hasn't taken place. I mean, I think we've gotten stuck again, in these ideological kind of battles, and there hasn't been this, in, prax, in practice, this return to the fundamental uh, characteristics or charisms of these, uh, of the Eastern Rite churches, as, as well as to the fullness of our, our spiritual tradition. And uh, there's a lot that, you know, even in the Eastern Rites, is, I've been surprised that many people have never heard of the Philokalia or, you know, or any of these writers from the Eastern tradition. And so there's a lot, a lot that we have to do. Soon, Mark. Hey, Father, thank you. <clears throat> My question was, and also Louise might be able to answer this, in the therapeutic world, there's such a rise to, and it's got a name, it's called affirmation therapy. And it's, it's an, how does this, how does this relate to the idea of vain glory? Because you, we do have a lot of, um, um, in today's world, we have a lot of children who have basically raised themselves. And also, um, they have not received um, positive affirmation uh, 
in a regular way from their parents. And a lot of times the the search for attention or from the vainglory is that, you know, could be a direct um, in relation to that. So um, I'm kind of curious about that and how the fathers might possibly see that because, you know, there would be individuals who uh, might not be able to handle some of this. And so that's my question and I appreciate your answer. Thank you. Yeah, it's a very large question. Uh, dissertation type of question. <laughs> but, oh, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, psychotherapy has a lot of benefits. And certainly there are those who, who grew up in environments that were lacking, uh, not only in terms of affirmation, you know, positive affirmation from parental figures, but there were traumatic or there, were, there was an absence of presence altogether. And, uh, but I think there has been in general, this, you know, movement away from the vertical, you know, to God, there's been this emergence of therapeutic man, therapeutic woman in place of religious man, religious woman, where the center of our identity is found in our relationship with God is what those made in his image and likeness. And we are never going to find no matter how much affirmation that we have uh, that undoes uh, some of the trauma or what is lacking, none of it is going to uh, address the greater need that we have as, as human beings, which is the lack of that relationship with God. You know, this loss of the sight of our true dignity and identity in him. And, uh, you know, and coming as one who studied psychology as well, you know, I see the fruit of it and I see, uh, you know, the uh, in the fathers, you know, and anticipating it because of the, the depth of their their understanding of the human person. Uh, but what psychology lost was this deeper meaning of the word uh, psychology or psychotherapy. It's the healing of soul, not simply of mind or emotion. It's of the whole person. And in this way, I think the, the fathers ex exceed uh, uh, in, in a sense of wi wisdom what we see uh, in much of modern psychology. Uh, that they, they had a deep understanding of the unconscious, of the multiple influences upon us. Uh, that, you know, most wounds are multi-determined, and not only by the things that we experience in this world, but by the evil one himself, principalities and powers. And, uh, and they also had a clear sense of the things that bring healing, the, the remedies. And part of the problem is that as Christian men and women, we've lost sight of that identity, uh, but also the, the, the richness of our tradition and the sacramental life that brings this deep healing. And when there is a movement away from something like the confessional, where there is this acknowledgement of this fundamental brokenness and need for healing, uh, and also counsel uh, in terms of the things that can be remedied to the passions that we struggle with. Uh, that there has been a, you know, where there's a movement away from that, there's a growing need for 
worldly means of, of seeking healing. And again, not to diminish it, but I think a lot of the things that we see as addictions now, the fathers would have simply called the passions, you know, sin that has become habitual or, you know, ways that we uh, have our appetites take hold of us in such a way that we lose the freedom uh, in our will, even though we want something much different for ourselves. And uh, it's not that it has to be either or. I think psychotherapy uh, adds some deep and profound insights. Uh, but in terms of affirmation, I mean, I think we can go back even further where not even where there's like a lack of affirmation, uh, but where there is a lack of presence or where there's abuse and uh, or there are no boundaries that are set or the boundaries that are, set are skewed. It, it malforms a person's perception of reality as well as morality. And I think what we're seeing, you know, even by cursory look at the culture is, you know, people's perception of reality breaking down altogether or creating it, a uh, kind of nihilism that nothing has meaning or it has the meaning that I give it. And, uh, and when that happens, you know, the culture around us begins to, to fall apart. Life in general begins to fall apart. And uh, so good question. I mean, it's a lot, lot to cover there. And, uh, you know, there can be deep healing that comes, you know, through the relationship between therapist and, and the, the one coming, you know, for therapy. And, uh, uh, but always the, the spiritual life and the life of grace is going to be the source of the deepest healing, and even if it is active in the hands of a doctor or through the hands of a doctor or a therapist, the depth of one's prayer life, of one's faith is always going to uh, bring the greatest strength and healing. Uh, Andrea and Anthony. <clears throat> Hi, Father. I just wanted to uh, share a audiobook I'm reading right now. It's uh by Simon Sinek, it's called Leaders Eat Last. And, you know, it's a it's a great book, you know, about uh, how to be good leaders. And just in a nutshell, you know, he says, if you treat your people right and make them feel secure, they will work for you without, uh, you know, needing to, uh, you know, be uh, uh, forced to do so. But one thing that he's mentioning is, you know, like the chemicals that go through our bodies as we experience different situations. And I was thinking about what you were saying about, you know, the whole person, healing the whole person and how sometimes, you know, we fall into these addictive patterns, which God wants to heal through different means. But what this person was saying is that that also affects our body at the chemical level. You know, it, uh, uh, of course, we've all heard of dopamine and, you know, like all these different chemicals, you know, that in, in the end, even, uh, you know, when uh, uh, we are uh, uh, at the throes of an addiction, you know, in, in a sense, you know, like, you know, even our bodies in our very bodies, you know, we're being hijacked by the devil, you know, then, you know, these chemicals, come out of order even at the chemical level we become disordered right. and uh, uh yes i i yes uh, 
uh, wanted to, uh, you know, just put that out, you know, that, uh, yeah, like this disintegration of the person happens, you know, at the spiritual level, the emotional level, yes, but even it manifests at the physical level. Right. Yeah, it's sort of interesting when these desert monks who, you know, were basically vegetarian and ate very little, often lived to like 115. <laughs> you know, they weren't subject to all the, you know, the poisons that, you know, we we take in. Uh, as well, not only spiritually, but physically. But uh, all very interesting. But why don't we move on a little bit here uh, with what John saying, at, le at least to finish up the, the vainglory section. Number 45. It often happens that when a worm becomes fully grown, it gets wings and rises up on high. So too, when vainglory increases, it gives birth to pride the origin and consummation of all evils. And so this takes us back to the beginning of the step. John was began with us wondering why the even the rest of the fathers saw vainglory as a, a separate vice, that there is something uh, that is so uh, similar to pride that he saw it more as a developmental thing, like the vainglory would be like the acorn and the oak would be oak tree would be pride. You know, it's the full development of this particular vice. And essentially that's what he's saying here, that, you know, as this vainglory, the, the self-focus uh, grows and takes hold of, then it gives rise to that which is really poisonous that, you know, makes the self really become the center of the universe and to take the place of God wholly. And uh, it's then, he says, that uh, uh, what we see is the consummation of all evils, that we open the door uh, to the, the worst of things to take hold of our life, uh, that within this vice, all, all the other vices have free entry and can take hold of us. He who is without this sickness is near to salvation, but he who is not free from it is far from the glory of the saints. So, you know, that we're, if we've been able to overcome this, then we've experienced a great deal of healing in the spiritual life. And that God has showered his grace upon us. And, uh, but if uh, we, we see it still having a hold on us, then uh, we have to acknowledge that uh, we're still novices, as it were, in the spiritual life. This is the 22nd step. He who is not caught by vainglory will never fall into that mad pride, which is so hateful to God. It's image. It's interesting. He uses this little phrase here, and it's part of the title uh, of the next step: "Mad Pride." That there, and I think there's a reason for this: that there is a kind of madness, a, a disconnect from reality. If God is truth, He is meaning. He is reality. The the more blind we come, we come to that because of pride the more disordered our perceptions become, then a kind of madness takes over 
and uh, we begin to pursue things that are, are con contrary to reason and good judgment altogether. And again, this isn't something that can only happen to individuals, but whole cultures, I think we can see it can take hold of and, and very quickly. Step number 23, as always, John begins with a definition and uh, often uh, that is filled with meaning. And again, we don't want to rush through it. He'll, he'll unpack it for us, but uh, it's good to meditate on it from the beginning. Pride is the denial of God. And so right from the beginning, you know, that there is in pride a turning away from God that is akin to idolatry, uh, a denial of God, of his existence, again, of turning towards the self and making ourselves God. Uh, an invention of the devil. Uh, so it is that which the devil uses uh, to, again, attack the very thing that he attacked in Adam and Eve, and then that gave rise to the fall itself, to that self-identity. Uh, take, eat of the fruit of the tree, and your eyes will be open, and you will know for yourself good and evil no you will experience for yourself the, that distinction between good and evil and uh and you will become like gods and they succumb to the illusion they embrace the madness and then what followed was uh a diminishment of that the dignity and that identity altogether the despising of men so our loss of capacity, not only to recognize what we have become in Christ, our own dignity and identity, but we lose the capacity to see it in others. The mother of condemnation. So anytime that we set ourselves to judging another or judging what they say or do harshly, no matter what it might be, we're placing ourselves uh, in a place that is only rightfully God's. The offspring of praise. So again, you know, praise of self, the praise that others give to us uh, is often the springboard then to, to pride when we when we take hold of it as a possession uh, rather than attributing it to the grace of God. A sign of sterility. And uh, again, uh, this is an interesting thing. Because on, surf, on the surface appearance, uh, a person's life can seem to be well-ordered, very fruitful uh, in terms of what they are accomplishing in their daily life or in their relationships. And even spiritually, uh, there can be this appearance because of, of the, again, the way that the devil will act in one's life, giving them certain insights if he can bring them down on a greater level. And so, but if we see pride, if pride is present, we, we know that those realities are sterile, that they aren't going to bear fruit uh, for the kingdom of God or for that individual. So no matter what, how well a person seems to be put together or successful, that if there is pride present, we can be sure, sure that there is something that's eating away 
uh, uh, at their internal life. Flight from divine assistance. So, you know, to acknowledge one's need seems to be something that diminishes the ego too much. Uh, and so one can be hesitant to pray or to, or to pray with any real depth or to acknowledge that, that poverty in, in any real way. And so seek to work by one's own efforts to raise oneself up. That uh, we talked a number of different times about that, the phenomenon of a person who's saved from drowning, how he often can become angry and aggressive towards the one who saved him from the surf because there's something humiliating and having to be dragged out of the water by your hair uh, because you weren't able to swim or you were overcome. And so a person who's filled with pride is not going to want to seem weak in any way or not want to seek the, certainly the help of God or seek the help of others. Why do I need to see a spiritual director? What do they have to tell me? Or, you know, what do I have to go to confession about? You know, I haven't done anything serious. You know, that when uh, that pride takes root, there's a resistance to acknowledging one's weakness or need in, in any measure. Uh, the precursor of madness. And so this is where I started out with, you know, that there is a, a distortion of reality. When we lose sight of what is at the heart of our identity, uh, our very creator. And when we lose sight of where, again, where our true identity and dignity is found, that the descent into madness uh, can be very swift, uh, that uh, we enter more and more into illusion. And it's interesting, you know, I think there is this fascination uh, that sort of mirrors this, I think, in our day, this fascination with uh these uh and i know a lot of actors hate them uh these superhero movies you know that we or or with uh science fiction even uh this you know made made up kind of reality uh as a kind of entertainment to i think this can be a mirroring of our wanting to escape the reality of our day-to-day -day life, to lose ourselves in that which is fascinating or, you know, that's, which seems magical to us. And, uh, and so, again, I don't want to be strident about this, but I think our constant craving for entertainment uh, is also a part of our uh, moving away from reality of what's going on internally and our movement away from silence too. The cause of falls, pride rideth before the fall. And so the moment that we have embraced the illusion that we're doing something by our own efforts uh, and accomplishing it by our own hard work, uh, it's not long before that illusion is broken.
you know, that we find ourselves falling off of the horse, uh, including uh, controlling our own baser instincts or appetites that we think that we have control of ourselves and we think that we would never do something that would be destructive to ourselves or to our loved ones uh, but <clears throat> often pride uh, will allow us to go up against up to that line thinking that we would never cross it uh, and and until we do and then it's often very destructive uh, this a foothold for satanic possession. And so if the evil one is the inventor of pride, if he's the father of lies, and one who wasn't willing to accept that reality himself, uh, then, you know, he's also then going to gain entry into our hearts insofar as we mimic him in that in this behavior if this is what uh is his identity or how we would come to describe him or the source of his own fall then when we see it in ourselves we know that we've opened the door uh, not to sin in sort of only in an action that is disconnected from any personal evil, that we know that we've opened the door to being uh, possessed by that, of it taking hold of us, of coming under the influence of not the Holy Spirit, but of an evil spirit. And, uh, and so it might be, uh, it might be, uh, not possession so much as oppression by certain things is how it often will begin where we're oppressed and driven by thoughts ideas temptations but it can devolve into and open the door to possession where the, the evil one takes hold of the person in a more complete fashion the source of anger uh it's an interesting thing because anger is an emotion. And so we are often slow to look hard at it, especially when we feel that it is justified, uh, not realizing that uh, even when it is justified, if not perfected and if not shaped by the grace of God, it can be used in such a way that is uh, not pleasing in the eyes of God. In fact, St. James goes so far as to say the anger of man does not produce fruit that is acceptable to God. And which is a pretty strong warning uh, because mo most often our, our anger is driven by a kind of self-esteem where somebody's wounded our egos and we lash out at them uh, for wounding us in one way or another. Uh, a door of hypocrisy. And so, you know, we become the actor. Uh, and even in our religiosity, we are, are putting on uh, uh, something like we are putting on our clothes in the morning. We're putting on our religiosity. And so we're acting the part 
but it's not arising out of a humble, contrite heart. The support of demons. Uh, what a powerful part of this definition, because it's saying that when we give way to pride, we are giving strength to the enemy. We're aiding and abetting the, the enemy and not only taking hold of us, but uh, in taking hold of others as well. That we become the instrument of, of the evil one uh, in, in doing so. The guardian of sins. So, you know, pride is, again, going to want to protect uh, self-esteem, uh, ego, and will make us want to hide that which is humiliating, that which is humbling. And, uh, and so our, our willingness to draw things into the light, so frequent confession. Uh, again, you know, coming back to Philip Neary, <clears throat> you know, he lived in a time when church had become very corrupt, the faith had become very lukewarm, and where he begins to uh, seek to bring healing is through the sacrament of confession, as is so often the case with uh, the saints who are uh, these great priests who spent hours within the confessional, you know, that there wasn't anything magical about it, and they didn't necessarily have any eloquence. John Vianney is another perfect example that he makes that which is most healing available and as available as possible to the faithful. That that opens up the door to repentance wider and wider, but also then for the reception of the grace that brings us healing. Uh, patron I on that. Of course. Um, I'm on a parish pastoral council and um, just recently I uh, took that position. And I made an observation in there because I, I see that the um, pastor ha is available on a Saturday afternoon from 4.30 till the 5 o'clock mass. And I asked, well, might we have uh, more availability? And I brought up St. John Vianney and so forth. Well, the conversation kind of started to revolve around the fact that well, times have changed and people don't, you know, kind of think they'll go to confession at Easter time and Christmas time, something along. Now, some other parishes, they have more frequent confession, I've observed. And, uh, you know, I, I don't live where there's a close Byzantine church where I where they do offer occasional liturgies. The Byzantine priest hears confessions before or after every liturgy. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I personally think that's better. But um, I'm just, um, I was just thinking as you were talking, it'd be interesting to see what went on between St. John Vianney and the parish he was in. Like, I, I'm wondering if people really wanted to go to confession when he first arrived, or that grew, and maybe, and St. Philip Neri that, there was this dialogue and, you know, there were dry days when nobody's coming to confession because that seems to be kind of what some priests are saying. You know, I just don't like to sit there. Nothing's happening. I'm wasting my time. Now you have to call the secretary to make an appointment. 
and then the model is coming in a, a professional model of priesthood uh, in that it's it's like a doctor's appointment that's been said that you need you know call the secretary make an appointment like you would if you're going to a doctor well he puts so much on the priest in a way you can you can kind of give them a little uh, slack on that because they're got major things to minister besides the sacramental ministry, which should be foremost. But I won't say any more. There's a full conversation there, but you right. kind of struck a nerve there on the notion yeah. of profession. Well, I, th I think that's true. I mean, I think over the course of time, the, this administrative role has come to the forefront. And in some ways, we've created that by the enormous facilities that we've also created that need care of and schools and all these different things, which, you know, play this role and bore fruit. But uh, in the process, it reshaped the, the identity of the priest, priesthood away from the pastoral activities into doing things that he really does not really have the skill to do, uh, but that take away from or become an excuse not to do the things that are most important. Like both Philip Neri and John Vianney spent hours in the box alone and, you know, the heat of the summer and the cold of the winter. And waiting, too, yeah. Waiting for people to come. And it's not like nothing happens there. Perhaps the most important thing is happening there. If you have this tiny seed of the faith of this priest who's making himself radically present and in the confessional, that seed can, can grow into something that is enormous. Uh, so it's not as though his, he's spending time there doing nothing. You know, he's spending time there in faith and in love for his people. And so even if nobody comes, God is at work. And, you know, the, the seed is often buried in the ground and doesn't immediately bear fruit. And that was true for all of these, for all these priests. And, uh, and, but there's everything in place to prevent it and to provide the excuse, excuses that free, free us from the charge of doing that. And it, you know, it becomes demoralizing to the priest often because you're often put into these roles of doing things that really have nothing to do with the priesthood. Uh, Anthony writes, just to pick up, when we crave entertainment like novels or movies or uh, over news and or or news and even news and talk radio, we open the door to the thoughts of others to tell a story and often the storytelling and acting makes vices into virtues. Even if it's not overt, the presentation undermines right thinking and behavior and causes future problems. That's right. We don't need news immediately. If we hear a story a week later, it's not going to affect what we do about it. And again, you know, I think it's the 24 new hours news cycle is to create this addiction. You know, as if we need to hear it said again and again and again, the same story uh, until it agitates our hearts and fills us with anxiety. 
And, uh, and so we do, we do well to turn it all off. And I think those in monasteries, that's where they have this kind of advantage because there's a little buffer there. They don't cut themselves off from the world. They have their news sources, but it's, they take it in small doses and only what is necessary. And uh, it's, but if we're consuming it, then it's going to become toxic for us eventually. Okay, I just wanna finish the, the, the definition and then we'll come back and pick up next time. Uh, the patron of the pitilessness of pitilessness. And so, you know, when, when we don't acknowledge our own sin, when we don't acknowledge our own pride or our own poverty, then we have no patience, no mercy for others. When we see weakness in them, we look down on them or judge them harshly. And so it's a destroyer of compassion, basically, he's telling us. The rejection of compassion, which he does say, I'm sorry, a bitter inquisitor. So rather than seeking to understand the other and what they are struggling with and what might have given rise to things taking place in their life, uh, the person becomes puts themselves in the position to scrutinize, to be, be the inquisitor, uh, to hold another up uh, for examination. Again, to place oneself in the position of God. You know, we're never going to see all ends and we certainly aren't going to see everything that a person experiences or what goes through their minds or their hearts. An inhuman judge. So one becomes a monster, basically. You know, that an inhuman judge of others, you know, that uh, not only lacks compassion, but really seeks to tear others apart and can take a kind of glory in that and even hunger for it. That once you have a taste, once a wild animal has a taste for blood, you know, a person who tastes, you know, the sweetness, that morbid delight in ripping another person to shreds is going to thirst for it because it gives them this false sense of power, uh, of greatness. It adds to their pride, an opponent of God. And so a person becomes an enemy of God. You know, the, the one who's come to us has embraced that poverty is humility incarnate, compassion incarnate. Then one places oneself in opposition to God and all that he seeks to accomplish. And then finally, the root of blasphemy, which John will spend a whole section at the very end of this step talking about. That uh, pride, when it takes over, opens us up to things that not only arise from the depths of our own heart, but it's like listening and overhearing the conversation of others. It, instead, it becomes the listening and overhearing of the blasphemy of the evil ones. So as we've opened ourselves up to the evil spirit through pride, you know, their hatred for what is good and their blasphemies against the church, against God, against Mary, are all things that the soul becomes open to and hears. And when it arises out of, of their, when they hear it, 
and they see it within themselves because they've heard it, then they think they're going mad. Where is this coming from? How could I be going to liturgy? How could I be going to mass and have these thoughts arise in my heart? And so John will spend a great deal of time talking about this as a postlude, if you will, to this step uh, of showing us the real damage that pride uh, has brought into our life. It makes us bosom buddies, if you will, with the evil one, and that relationship wears off. And the conversations that we hear there, even if we're not conscious of it, uh, become rooted in our unconscious and often will emerge precisely at the times that are humiliating uh, or when we are engaged in prayer and then can drive a person into despair. So, you know, again, in, in this step, we're going to see the, the wisdom of the fathers really at its best, uh, that they, they saw and could see very clearly the action of the evil one and the vulnerability that our vainglory and our pride bring to us. And again, th this is, you know, it's therapeutic in the fullest sense. You know, th there's nothing that, something of our own creation, you know, outside of faith could do for us. Like modern psychotherapy is never going to be able to get at the root of pride. And I think, you know, it's probably why it's never going to get at the root of things like anxiety. You know, if we're, if we're, oh, if pride brings us and makes us opponents to God and draws us to the edge of madness, then we're always going to experience that on some level. You know, the, we're holding on by a thread. At times, reality is going to seem, you know, just out of reach. And uh, the fathers understood very well why that's true. If Sigmund Freud had only read the Desert Fathers, boy, would uh, psychotherapy be a really powerful thing. So, okay, we'll stop there. We're a little over time. And uh, we can come back to this definition. So anything that struck you there, you know, feel free next time. We'll pick it up. Okay. So let's close as always with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.